Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. See if you could tell, see, well, I'm, I'm, he's going to hear me. So maybe we can try to keep, this, keep uh, Hello, Victor. hi, Victor. Uh, maybe we can, if we can try to keep you and I to maybe a half hour. Welcome everyone to Gimme Shelter, the California housing crisis podcast. I am Liam Dillon and I write about housing affordability with the Los Angeles Times. And I'm Manuela Tobias and I cover housing with CalMatters. And today, August 4th, 2021, we're talking about trying to answer the question that I get in my email, text messages, sometimes in coffee shops, all over the place. Why, Manuela, is it so hard to pass housing legislation at the state capitol? I've been covering this for four months and been shocked at how much that question keeps coming up, both for readers and for myself. Democrats have a supermajority. Housing is the number one issue we keep hearing time and again. So why is it so impossible to get stuff done on this issue? And hopefully we'll come a little bit closer to an answer by the end of this podcast. Doing our best. We'll be mentioning the sort of the powerful interest groups that are involved in housing debates, the role of legislative leaders and the governor, and then ultimately how everything really conspires to not work and then to not really solve the state's housing affordability problems. And we have the perfect guest to discuss these debates. Who is it, Liam? So today we're with Annie Fryman. She is a former staffer for State Senator Scott Weiner, and one of the most prolific authors of housing bills in recent years. Annie was involved in trying to advance all of Senator Weiner's major housing legislation, and we'll be digging deep into their successes and their failures. But first, before we get to the meat of our episode, we have the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery. It is the... Avocado of the Fortnite. Avocado of the Fortnite, our look at the most absurd or ridiculous story in all of California housing politics over the past two weeks. So Manuela, where does this avocado take us to? So we head to National Mortgage News for this smoking new report. Oh, <laughs> gonna have a bunch of this. All right, keep going. Headlined, recreational marijuana is a gateway drug to higher home prices. Oh, uh, okay. The report claims that legalized marijuana is what's getting California's property values so high. From April 2017 to April 2021, the report reads... Home prices grew by an average of $17,113 in states that permit recreational cannabis sales over those where it's prohibited or strictly only available for medicinal use, according to Clever Real Estate. So on top of high home prices, California leads the way in cannabis sales tax revenue, too. So what do you make of this one here that it's not a housing shortage, it's not any of these other sorts of things that we discussed, but actually pot is the reason that housing costs are so high in California? I almost called it quits. This almost posed the answer to our housing crisis. That's right. That's right. I was excited there for a minute, but the argument for causation instead of mere correlation seemed like one of those things where, yes, one thing is happening, another thing is happening. So... What does this actually tell us about anything? There are so many different factors that go into determining property values. 
And this report didn't quite do it for me. But what about you, Liam? Does this make you want to change the avocado to a different green symbol on our our podcast? Cannabis of the fortnight, perhaps that's now on the table. But I would agree. I think the results of this study seemed a bit dubious to me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I'll be honest, Manuela, like I really hate pot-related puns in pot stories, of which every single story seems to have one. And we have just done about a half dozen. And so I kind of hate myself at this moment. I don't, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) A tip of the hat here to friend of the podcast, Diego Aguiar Cannibal from Berkeley for the avocado suggestion. I think that is his second or third at this point that he's suggested. And so good work, Diego. Thank you for the consistent help. Okay, so let's move to our main topic, the burning question on the minds of every listener and every reader and every person in California trying to look for a solution to the housing crisis. Why can't the legislature fix it? Liam, why don't we start with you? You've been covering this issue in the state legislature from 2016 to early 2020. Now, no longer as focused on the politics, but I think that there is some really valuable lessons that you have from all of that coverage, especially when this housing debate really started picking up. So I think there's some general acceptance among advocates, among the sort of academic literature and experts, et cetera. The reason why California has such intense housing problems is that there's a massive shortage of housing overall. And also the state spends, frankly, billions of dollars less annually than the need is there for subsidized housing for the most impoverished. And so you have a broad supply problem and then kind of a money problem to ensure that those who sort of need the most help are able to have housing. And so you'd think why can't we do housing legislation that addresses both of those things? You think this would be kind of easy because basically every interest group involved in the housing debate would benefit in some way from more housing being around. You think about labor groups represent construction workers. If there's more housing, that means more jobs for their workers. Realtors, another major interest group, if there are more homes, then realtors have more homes to sell. Landlords, if there's more houses, there's more apartments to rent. Tenants, also, if there's more houses, there are more apartments to rent, both good for them. Cities, if there's more homes, there's more property tax revenue. For environmentalists, more I could keep going, but more housing in, in environmentally friendly places, fewer carbon emissions, that's good. Developers, this is obvious, right? So again, at a very high level, you'd think more housing would be great for all of these interest groups. And I think that a great example of that is even for those who are happy in their home, were able to afford it, even they're coming up against housing problems right now with seeing so many people experiencing homelessness on the street. It really has become one of those issues that everyone is tuned into and everyone wants addressed. I mean, it's in poll after poll in the recall election as well. Homelessness keeps coming up. So Why is it that these interest groups, it seems like, why are they not coming together on this issue? Sort of to that point, while again at the high level, all of these sort of powerful interest groups that are involved in housing debates at the Capitol benefit in some way from more housing. The reality is when it comes to sort of the brass tacks of passing legislation, the actual words of that legislation 
ends up pitting all these groups against each other. So let me just give you sort of a few examples. So we talked about there being an interest or a need for more money to subsidize affordable development. So if you want to do that, well, let's say maybe you want to put a fee on real estate transactions. Well, when you try to do that, the realtors who are really important and powerful, they freak out because they don't want anything that would be a drag or stymie in any way home sales because that's, of course, their bread and butter. And so there's been numerous pieces of legislation that try to change the state's version of the mortgage interest deduction. Those bills went down in flames because the realtors said, no, 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 no. Do not change these incentives or these things that promote sort of home sales. So that's one sort of thing. Say now, though, you want to reduce some regulations to make it easier for developers to sort of build housing overall. Well, developers like that, of course, but only some of them. There is a split between sort of the for-profit market rate developers and sort of the nonprofit low-income housing developers. And when you talk about reducing regulations, the affordable housing developer folks think those incentives should only be for them. And then these regulations, they're often framed in terms of laws or ordinances that cities have, uh, local governments. And so they don't like these ideas because it takes their power away. And then labor groups, very important, and we'll talk a lot more about them, in my view, sort of the most significant and powerful group involved in the housing debates, they believe that reducing regulations may reduce their leverage that they have over developers when it comes to pay or work rules. And so they don't like it either. Because it's often in the review process that they get to campaign for their members to build this housing or whatever project comes up. Exactly. So if you remove sort of a decision point from the process of building housing, which a lot of these legislation that has been proposed attempts to do, then labor then loses the ability to, again, have leverage for pay or work rules or things that the construction workers want. So when you add all these things together, these groups are often so at each other's throats that the governor and lawmakers, when they see this, they almost sort of throw their hands when they try to get this bigger stuff done and say, well, you can't really do it because the end of the day, a lot of these groups are not powerful in and of themselves to get legislation passed, but they are powerful in and of themselves to get legislation killed or have it not to move forward. Another example of that is when they all do try to get their preferences into a bill, it's like they're trying to shoot too many birds with one stone. Yeah. So it ends up just being so heavy that they say, well, if you're going to please this group, you can't also please this group. So for example, in some bills earlier this session to build affordable housing, there's this fight between make a certain percentage of units affordable, but also build them using certain union labor. And so some developers say, well, if you require affordable housing, which is going to up the cost, you can't also require this to be built with union labor, which is also going to up the cost making a project infeasible. So then that bill that I'm talking about was killed pretty early on in the process. So I think we see that happening repeatedly. Yeah, and that's a really good point because what often ends up happening also occurs with attempts to change the California Environmental Quality Act, which also is a longtime 50-year-old state law that affects not only housing development, but also any kind of major infrastructure programs. There's been a lot of effort to change it because developers believe in many cases this law can be onerous and requires too many things, so easy to sue and to slow down. The bills, ultimately, because these groups kind of argue so much, get written so narrowly that they really only are able to affect 
one or two projects, and they're sort of called unicorn projects, where the projects that qualify for these streamlined regulations or relief under the California Environmental Equality Act have to be in an urban area within a half mile of transit with 40% affordable housing, with basically all union labor. And it also has to abide by all local design and architectural review standards. And when it comes to actually trying to get a project that would fit for this sort of quote-unquote relief, no one actually can build a project to those specifications. What may have started as a major sort of relief bill ends up being a bill that may look that way on paper, but the reality is it doesn't really do anything. And I think that story that you wrote on the cost of building affordable housing was an excellent example of this. You found that it was more expensive to build affordable than it was what we might call a luxury apartment unit because of all these extra regulations, right? Yes, that's a story that we did in 2020, where we showed that to build low-income housing, California is the highest in the country. We found one project with a million dollars per apartment, which is an insane number. And a lot of the reason for that, lumber costs a lot. And yes, there are a lot of things that are out of the hands of state policymakers, but these environmental rules, these parking requirements, the process by which affordable developers have to get their money, all of these things contribute to that high cost in many ways that are unique to California. So everything you're describing makes it seem pretty unlikely for anything to pass. But there are housing laws that have passed. And so I'm wondering if you could take us back to a time when all of this infighting was overcome to actually pass legislation that addressed some part of the housing affordability crisis. Yeah, so there really was, in my experience, this kind of one time when all of these sort of warring interest groups ended up being on the same team, if you will, and a healthy amount of, relatively speaking, significant housing legislation was passed. So I'm going to take everybody back to 2017. This was a time, of course, when no one knew what the coronavirus was. I <laughs> remember back that far. But this is also when Jerry Brown, the predecessor to Gavin Newsom, was the governor. And there was this sort of eight-dimensional chess going on with not only housing legislation, but kind of then-governor's entire agenda. So Governor Brown was very interested in passing legislation as it related to climate change. And some Democrats in the legislature realized that. And because of the legislation, which was to extend the state's cap and trade program, needed a supermajority to actually happen. That meant that these Democrats had even more leverage to try to get something they wanted out of the governor. And they wanted something to do with housing. Brown, knowing this, also wanted to make sure that he got something he wanted out of the deal on housing, too. And so there was this moment when it was really insightful as to kind of how long-term looking that some of these projects have to be to pass major legislation or to pass legislation that is part of a larger package. Spring of 2017, there was a bill that Senator Weiner had called Senate Bill 35, which did some of these streamlining things that we had discussed, made it so that developers could build more quickly without as much local review of their projects if they set aside a certain percentage of the housing to be for low-income residents. Brown had tried a year prior with a version of this bill. It didn't go anywhere. But 2017, Weiner sort of picked up the mantle on this and included a labor provision that was sort of more palatable to the construction workers union. But labor at the time was still not super enthused about this idea. So 2017, early on, there was a key committee hearing where it wasn't clear that this bill was actually going to advance 
And what happened was Nancy McFadden, who was the chief of staff for Governor Brown, called a bunch of key labor leaders and said, you know, this bill has to get through. And it did happen that way. Why was that enough? So we are going to get into this a lot more, I think, with our guest, Annie. But you have to understand some of the dynamics where construction trades were very indebted to Governor Brown, in part because of Brown's sort of stalwart support of the high-speed rail project, which, of course, the construction workers also really liked because it gave them a lot of very good jobs, potentially for a long period of time. And so having that relationship and having, I think, also the belief Brown was going to be behind it, then there was a very good chance it was going to get done at the end of the day, whether you would oppose it or not. That provided enough sort of oomph to at least push that bill forward at that moment. And oftentimes that's kind of all that you need to then help shape a broader deal. So that bill, as I said, Senate Bill 35, was a key part of these sort of 15 pieces of legislation that ended up passing in 2017. And there almost certainly would not have been an entire package without that bill had that call not been made six months prior to the actual bill and all of the bills sort of being passed. If you could talk a little bit about a package. You know, there are a lot of advocacy groups on the affordable housing side, also not super enamored with Senate Bill 35. They felt it maybe had been too generous to developers. However, though, they held their fire against the bill because there were some things in there that they liked, which was there ended up being a three to four billion dollar bond. It ended up being Proposition 1 that voters voted on passed in 2018. That was put on the ballot by the legislature, and that ended up providing a lot of funding for low-income housing. There was also a piece of legislation, Senate Bill 2, which tacked on a $75 fee to real estate transactions, except for home sales. It's the only way the realtors would allow that bill to go through, which also provided money for low-income housing. And there's the governor and legislative leaders behind it. Everyone is sort of forced to hold hands and kind of jump together. And while none of the bills, these 15 bills that passed 2017, did anything, of course, to ultimately solve the housing crisis, there were some meaningful efforts. $3 billion, not chump change, probably venture to say at this point, you know, thousands of units across the state approved via Senate Bill 35. This fee is raising, you know, $250, $300 million a year that's going towards planning and particularly towards cities to update their plans to help sort of spur or ease the path for new development. And so, again, nothing earth shattering, but stuff that certainly has gone further towards solving some of the endemic issues that would be there without it. And so the idea for a package is basically if one bill gets through, the other one also has to come along with it. We're not leaving that behind. Exactly. So that housing package was not the only one that we've seen. There were several housing packages introduced since that did not get through. Why do you think that is? While the outlines of that could be replicable, there were some things that sort of happened that were unique there. You have a different governor, you have now Newsom, while certainly put housing to the front of his agenda, referred often to his promise of three and a half million new housing units by 2025. He has not been able to, for whatever reason, engage with the legislature and interest groups in such a way that been able to kind of put something all together. I think he has had different priorities in part because of things, of course, particularly over the past 18 months that have been forced upon him with the pandemic and wildfires, right? Things like that. Also, you have interest groups who kind of change priorities as well. Something that maybe a few years ago might have been palatable or okay for an interest group 
that's no longer the case. And they may use the leverage or power that they have to try to say no to some of these bigger ideas. And then you have kind of new interest groups that are kind of emerging on the scene as well. I think in 2017, neighborhood groups were not really super engaged in what was happening at the Capitol because they sort of saw everything that was related to housing kind of more of a local issue, something you'd fight about at city council and not something you'd have to go to Sacramento for. Once SB 35 passed and once Senator Weiner came forward with uh, some additional bills that were very aggressive on planning SB 827, SB 50, both you know failed efforts that would have many cases dramatically increased allowable building apartment complexes in single family neighborhoods and transit. Then a lot of these neighborhood groups kind of got wise to this and began advocating at the Capitol as well. And you see their influence, groups like Livable California, where they've now kind of a decently robust effort where they're lobbying legislators very frequently on these issues. But I really think kind of the interesting story, and this is maybe something you could speak to, kind of the evolving character or belief by the construction trades. You know, I talked about them being very powerful, but now they seem to be sort of sowing their oats or showing their power pretty aggressive way. What have you found in terms of how they've used their influence over the last couple of years? So the provision that you were talking earlier about what the trades had been pushing for in these previous sessions had been a requirement to pay workers union level wages. And that stance has shifted to a more aggressive policy, not so much about the wages, but to require that workers be graduates of apprenticeship programs, most of which the unions run. So that stance has definitely caused a lot more friction because developers are saying there's just not enough workers to make projects feasible if you are going to limit who gets to work on them. And labor is pushing back saying you need to pay workers and you need to hire workers so that we can build up a strong union workforce as there once was. So like that's kind of the policy debate. And on the one hand, you have labor saying, look, we need our our members to have greatest pay that's available and also greatest job access, if you will, that's available. And then you have developers pushing back and saying, well, all of these things, if you add them up, would be too expensive. And if you pass a bill to do something, we won't be able to use it because it makes it too expensive. So that's sort of the policy argument. But what is it actually kind of meant politically for the fate of a lot of these sort of proposals over the past couple of years? So there was a bill that Annie will probably be able to take us into by Senator Scott Weiner to allow affordable housing to be built on church parking lots. And because that provision wasn't in there, led to basically that bill being killed. This is in 2020. And so this year, something similar happened a bill to allow big box stores like Best Buy and strip malls that have been abandoned, these businesses moved out during the pandemic and earlier, to allow that zoning that currently only allows retail to take up space to switch that so that housing can also be built. So there was a bill earlier this session that did not include this labor provision. And basically you had this parade during a hearing of worker group after worker group, mostly local unions saying, this is going to drive jobs into the underground economy. We can't have this. And immediately after that, that bill died. So that was in the assembly. And then you have a similar bill in the Senate, along with a few other bills, not only to allow housing in commercial zones, 
but also one to, for example, create an affordable housing financing agency in LA. And all of these bills include the labor language. Even when I had talked to Senator Caballero, who was the author of the Senate's version of the the commercial zoning. So she's a a Democrat from Central Valley. Correct. She had brought up some issues, too, around the feasibility of the labor provision. And yet it was included in full in that bill. Having that included has allowed these bills to move forward politically because No one wants to run up against the trades. And now what's happening is these bills have made it out of the Senate and into the Assembly, and they just missed a key deadline to go into policy committee and move forward. So what I'm hearing is the one thing all these bills have in common is the labor provision. And so what we see here that kind of ties back to what we've been talking about is before you were letting the developers and labor hash this out and clearly not leading to any kind of agreement. Negotiations have failed time and again, and that's why you have the language as it is either killing a bill or letting it move forward. So what's interesting about these bills being held is that here is leadership finally exercising their authority instead of leaving it to the developers or labor's own devices, because it's ultimately Assembly Speaker Anthony Rendon, Democrat from L.A., it's his decision whether or not these bills get passed on to committee. Let's sort of zoom out here. So this is a little bit kind of murky and opaque. You know, I read your story on this, which is very good. Everyone should read it. But you have these quotes from people being like, I think this is what's going on. I'm not 100% sure, right? So there's always questions about kind of who's in the room and making these decisions. There's also people maybe listening to this and think, well, Lawmakers are the ones who decide whether bills, they vote and they decide whether bills move forward or not. What is the deal with interest groups? But the reality on the ground is what often happens, in part because lawmakers are not experts on everything, is they say, look, you guys, we like both of you. We like low-income housing developers. We like labor. Just fix it. Come to us with a solution. We'll put it in the bill. It'll be fixed and then we'll move it forward. But if you can't fix it, then none of you get what you want. And the reality is the latter has been happening sort of time and time again. And we've reached this sort of political stalemate in the absence of, frankly, enough leadership to break the stalemate or to roll over one of these interest groups in a comprehensive way. This is what you've been getting over the past two years, I think, in part spurred by a more aggressive posture from labor, the lack of legislative leaders or the governor weighing in definitively. And this sort of stalemate has sort of continued and we're at where we are politically. We're, you know, pretty far removed from the idea of actually building a project where a construction worker would swing a hammer. That being wrapped up in this larger sort of argument or debate about what the future of the state's, you know, construction worker labor workforce should look like. Right. And I think that this also sort of gets at the original question of, okay, it's a Democratic supermajority. Why can't they get something done? And the thing is that both of these ideals are extremely progressive, labor and affordable housing. And this has been really hard for anyone to weigh into because they really sort of get at these key democratic values. So that's what I think is going to be really interesting to watch what happens. Do these bills just stall and die out? Or is the language actually going to reach a point where it pleases both sides And what is that going to mean politically if one group gets crossed? There's consequences on both sides, if you will, if people don't get their way. 
And lawmakers are very, of course, sensitive to keeping their jobs and don't want to do things that may threaten their ability to keep their jobs. And labor has sort of made it very clear if they are crossed, then they will take an aggressive stance against those lawmakers in terms of ads or potentially not funding their campaign or even potentially funding an opponent to them going forward. And so that's a very, very, very sort of threatening, if you will, posture. And even in reporting this story, something I learned that I think is illuminating here is how some of this might not even have to do with the actual policy. So Brendan and the trades don't have the best relationship, I learned, because in part, some attack ads that the trades ran against one of Brendan's members, Christina Garcia, back in 2018. And so when I asked Brendan's political consultant, Bill Wong, about this, he told me that it's like when couples argue and things from the past come up, even if they're not relevant to the argument at hand. And I think that's really interesting, too, that these tensions can linger and add a lot of additional layers. Someone who's just paying attention to housing might say, well, what does that have to do with anything? I think that politics is definitely very interwoven and very personal at the end of the day. And that's part of what is holding a lot of this legislation up. While I think potentially some of these bills could be sort of somewhat meaningful in limited cases, none of the things that are on the table right now in the legislature are going to really make a dramatic effort towards solving the state's housing crisis. They're going to be things that are around the edges. And I think when you're having this level of fighting and this level of like stalling about sort of what in the grand scheme of things are kind of minor solutions, potentially, it speaks all the well more about if you actually want to do something major, how much harder that would actually be. So with that uplifting note, let's talk to Annie. So we are here with Annie Fryman. She was the lead housing staffer for Senator Scott Wiener from 2016 to 2020. She left during the pandemic, is now living back in San Francisco, working on ADUs at a company called Abodu. Annie, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you for including me. It's good to be back with you. So, Annie, we joked at the top, and Well and I, that people always ask us why it's so hard to pass major housing legislation in Sacramento What did you know about how like this entire process worked when you first started with the senator? Oh, very, very little. I had had probably about four months total experience working in government before coming up to my job as a legislative aide in the Capitol. And it was sort of a funny year starting in December 2016 because we were kicking off Trump having just been elected the California legislature and the governor, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, really kind of wanting to unify as a position and show of strength as this like state of anti-Trump, two-thirds majority Democrats. And so there was a lot of massive policy that was really trying to get pushed through with very, very high stakes, both perceived and real. And I was kind of just taking cues from the folks around me and trying to learn as quickly as possible and ended up really apprenticing on the job as we went as to what to expect about how the sausage gets made and how bills do or do not pass, succeed or fail. So your first sort of year, you had this sort of first big bill, SB 35, which Manuel and I discussed nuts and bolts. But we also talked about sort of this very key moment where at a very early committee hearing, the then governor's chief of staff calls labor leaders who were kind of hinky or opposed to the bill, telling them to kind of back off and let it through that committee. What do you remember the context surrounding what was going on there? 
It was a really stressful and uncertain time for that bill. And as a result, a very stressful and uncertain time for the broad potential success of the entire housing package that was then wrapped up also in the success of cap and trade and of SB1 and of all these other priorities that were really tied together at the time. And basically the lead up to that committee hearing, I'll just give a brief background, is that we had introduced SB 35 the day that Senator Weiner had gotten sworn in, in December of 2016. And pretty soon, there was a lot of stakes around SB 35 because it was seen as the linchpin streamlining bill that was going to push forward the affordable housing funding. It was a broad priority for the legislature. We got expedited into our very first committee hearing in the Transportation and Housing Committee. I believe that they called a special hearing for that bill just to prove that the Senate was much more serious about passing a streamlining bill than the Assembly. And so at that point, the dynamic was the Senate and the Assembly were competing with each other to be the darling streamlining bill to the governor. We got through the Transportation and Housing Committee relatively smoothly. Then eight weeks passed before we got a second committee hearing. Usually those happen in consecutive weeks, maybe two weeks in between. Because both SB 35 was scheduled early, as well as we had a ton of time, as well as all the drama that ensued, the local governance and finance committee hearing was, I think, like six, seven, eight weeks later. And in that interim... There was a huge backlash from organized later, specifically the State Building Trades and Construction Council, around should there be a prevailing wage standard or should there be a skilled and trained labor standard, similar to the conflicts that are still going on today with bills in 2020, 2021. The help that we ended up getting from the governor's staff was the message from the governor's office to labor that this is a priority for us. You have our hands tied on a lot of our priorities and we have your hands tied on a lot of your priorities. We're not going to pull a fast one on you, but we need more space and time to get this bill to a place where we're both happy with it. And so the night before a committee hearing where SB 35 very well might have died, the governor's office had decided this was a priority that could not die because there wasn't really a significant backup plan with the same momentum. And the governor's chief of staff called very, very senior leadership within the building trades and said, you have our word, we will continue to prioritize this, but we all need more time. And I think that if you go back and watch those committee hearings in early March 2017 to the Governance and Finance Committee in late April 2017, there's a marked difference in tone, both in the aggression coming from the trades and sort of the buildup that had come up in organizing all of these locals around the state and all of the sort of peripheral allies of them, but also one of the main trades lobbyists gave the primary testimony in that committee hearing. And although he ended up giving a many, many, many minutes long, seething, searing testimony about why he didn't like the bill, he started off with, we all know this bill is going to get through today. And that is a direct result of that call coming the night before saying, you have our word and we have your word on a lot of other things. We're way too delicate right now to pull a fast one on you. Give us more space. Let's work this out in the second house. And that's exactly what happened. Could you explain a little bit what it was that they wanted and what it was that they were willing to get as a result of all of these conversations? It changed over the course of the year what they wanted. Before we introduced SB 35, my boss, Senator Weiner, and this is something he's been very public about ever since, called the trades directly, who had long been an ally of his, even in local government, building up to his election, and he had predicted they would be also in the legislature, and said, hey, I know you've had issues with streamlining bills before. These take certain housing projects out of CEQA. What would you like to see? And they said prevailing wage. And that was just a very straightforward, 
what would you like to see in this bill such that we can get this through successfully with your support? And the response was prevailing wage. And prevailing wage was included in the very first version of SB 35 as a result of that ask from them. Just quickly some context. That was a key disagreement. And the reason why Governor Brown's version of a streamlining bill on which Senator Weiner based his own streamlining bill on, that didn't have a prevailing wage. Labor sort of killed that immediately in 2016. Here a year later, it's essentially the same bill with that prevailing wage amendment attached to it. And prevailing wage being this union level wages, just for those who have not been following this debate. Yeah, it's essentially the same construction wages that workers would make on a public works project. So when they're building a highway or when they're building a bridge or something to that effect. And also, I mean, just to give a minor correction to what Liam said, it wasn't even a year before, six months before, because it was a budget play that Jerry Brown had actually pushed forward his budget trailer bill. So we were following that very closely when I was in local government in San Francisco. We knew that we wanted to build off of, you know, both the successes and learn from the failures of that six months prior. And so we put prevailing wage in even the very first intent bill that SB 35 was and never planned on wavering from that. Then my guess is that labor didn't expect us to give them what they wanted the very first go around. They think they expect a little bit more of a negotiation. And so when we put prevailing wage in the very first round, then all of a sudden the goalposts move. And then it was, wait, we want a skilled and trained workforce. We want apprenticeship requirements. We want all of these other things that it was sort of uncertain, again, why the goalposts move and also what the impact on the efficacy of the policy would be. And that's something that people are still arguing about today speculatively is what does the difference between prevailing wage and skilled and trained do to the feasibility of projects and what are the trade-offs that you're making. And so as we progress through the winter and into the spring, the ask very quickly converted from prevailing wage as now prevailing wage is actually completely unacceptable as a baseline for SB 35. And what we really want is skilled and trained workforce, which policy-wise is a meaningful difference. And there was a lot of frustration from supporters of SB 35, as well as folks on our team that, hey, we gave you what you want and now you're asking for something else when we had delicately gotten a lot of buy-in from a lot of different folks. And that's honestly where the governor's office and the leadership both from the governor really came into play as helping us and supplementing our ability and our capital in negotiating with the state building trades, which as a first-year member, you don't really have that much capital to do. Can you explain that? Why are they such a big, heavy influence? What happens if you cross them? I think there's a lot of fears that members have that, especially in a district like, for example, San Francisco, where you are very, very close with your unions. They have long supported Senator Weiner, at least in our position, since he very first ran for office. They help you campaign. They raise money for you. You have strong relationships back in the community with those folks. And that relationship is just important to maintain, just like any other person or group that's loyal to you that you have aligned values with. However... A lot of politics and negotiation is somewhat transactional. It's I give you something, you give me something. And when you're a first-year member, you don't have cap and trade to dangle over someone's head. You don't have SB1 to dangle over someone's head. You only have your sort of one-dimensional priority right there. And so just saying, hey, you want this thing, I want this thing, it's not really a one-dimensional negotiation because there's a million different ways that they could help you or hurt you in pursuing your other priorities. And you don't really have that ability to negotiate or leverage in return. Now, if you're Governor Jerry Brown, who has 16 years of experience being a governor and running the entirety of the state's portfolio of priorities, 
that's a different story. If you're the Senate leadership and you have the entirety of the Senate policy, as well as the budget, as well as the intro to the governor's office, that's also a very different story. And so having the support of leadership and the governor really helped us have a much more solid position when we wanted to collaborate with them on, hey, there's this policy issue, and it's kind of turning into a, not a he said, she said, but a he wants, she wants. And when those are in conflict, like what ends up happening, the person with more power and leverage is going to prevail. And so it kind of ends up being that dynamic where it's, okay, how do we work this out in a high trust environment and get our priorities on the same page about what we want that end goal to be? So I think the reason why we wanted to highlight this particular moment, and as you're explaining it really, really well, it's just so instructive to understanding how so many things work. You're talking about the role of a powerful interest group, the role of leadership, the governor, and then also the fact that things that may not have any connection at all with the matter at hand, this housing bill, environmental policy, transportation policy, completely different bills and legislation, in some cases, personal relationship, all coming into play, and not only all coming into play at the moment when everyone thinks the bill becomes a law on the last night before bills are allowed to pass and there's this huge flurry, but we're talking six, nine months out from when those deadlines actually occur. When you sit and reflect about not just that moment, but about this entire process, what do you think that says about how you can or sort of can't past big things. What stuck out to me most about the flurry of successes, and not just in housing, but across the board in policy in 2017, was that those policy packages and victories were put together with the foundation of a high trust environment among the folks who could get it done. And what I mean by that is that There was a broad reputation that Governor Jerry Brown had earned over the course of his career that it is really hard to become one of his priorities, but once you're one of his priorities, it's going to get done. It is really hard to make him make a promise to you, but once he makes a promise to you, the thrust of that administration is going to get it done. And so when, for example, senior folks in the governor's administration prioritize SB 35 because they've mapped out that that's the linchpin to all of their other priorities for the rest of the year. It was known not just among my team with Senator Weiner, but it signaled to other folks in the legislature that there was no option where this didn't get done, so you had to play ball. Doesn't mean you have to bend over and give everything that they want, but if you didn't play ball with that game of negotiation, that there would be consequences for you. And that's something where a first-year legislator and their staff can't really, like, inflict consequences on massive interest groups and folks because we don't have control over their other priorities. But the governor's administration, especially while they're trying to figure out what their last year or two of legacy is going to be, it was you're either in or you're out, and the folks who are in, they're going to have their priorities delivered. Along those same lines, Newsom has made housing, right, his top priority. And yet he hasn't really gotten any of these packages or even individual big bills relating to housing through. Why do you think that is? Why isn't he putting his weight behind any of the big bills that deal with housing? I'll caveat my answer by saying I've not worked for the legislature for close to a year now. So I'm sure there's a lot of inside baseball that I'm not the most wired in person like I may have been a year ago. What I will say is that I do think it can be true that that is the case and also that 
housing is the highest priority for Newsom of things that he can predict and expect and be in control of. But you say housing is your first priority, and then a significant chunk of the state is on fire, fire becomes your priority. You say housing is your priority, and then one of the biggest publicly owned utilities goes bankrupt, that has to become your priority. And it's just been sort of like crisis after crisis after crisis on top of the first couple years of a new administration. And so it's hard for me to say exactly, make this any kind of slight on Newsom, just because I don't know enough to really fully believe that that's the case. And I think that we have seen some success with housing, but these proactive, long horizon housing policy changes about what the 5, 10, 20, 30 year plan with land use in the state of California is, I understand how that priority has gotten bumped down the chain, however disappointing it is to people like us who are the people who do prioritize that 5, 10, 20, 30 year land use plan as that linchpin issue. You know, Manuel and I spent a lot of time talking about the role of interest groups. And while they may agree sort of writ large that housing is good in many ways, when you get to the actual nuts and bolts of what that looks like legislatively, there's not a lot of agreement on that. But I want to talk to you a little bit about how these interest groups and their roles evolved over time in your experience. And the one that I really want to call out is back in 2017, when SB 35 passed, there was not sort of an organized at least statewide effort of kind of neighborhood activists involved at the time. They were not super engaged. But by the time your then boss had his sort of SBA 27, SB 50, progressive kind of increased density bills, those groups became and those folks became very engaged at the Capitol. What was it like to see those folks become involved more so over time? Very stressful. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that's an important observation. And the other thing that I'll say is that I think a lot of the points and values that these neighborhood activists are pushing forward were not not present in 2017, but they were present with more established and more accountable, and in my opinion, higher integrity groups that were going to be involved in capital housing politics for a long time and had been for a long time. So for example, some of the talking points that we see from those neighborhood activist groups are somewhat similar from the ones that we would see from the League of Cities, which is the sort of coalition of local governments. It's a lot of the city council members and mayors, particularly from the smaller general law cities, but really running the spectrum. So one anecdote from SB 35 is there was a point when the League of Cities put out a ton of misinformation about what SB 35 did that freaked out a lot of legislators. And they said, here's this group. Here's what they say this bill did. This is unacceptable. This is going to hurt our community. And frankly, it was rooted in a lot of untruths and misleading statements. And what we did is we wrote a 10-page response letter to the League of Cities that we CC'd every legislator on and put it under every single legislator's door. And we debunked each of those points. And because there was this higher integrity, accountability, and set of norms among people who sort of do business in the Capitol— That shut down a lot of that misinformation that was spreading. Now, when those same talking points come out of this decentralized network of neighborhood organizations around the state, they're not held to that same standard of integrity, in my opinion. And so, for example, like the livable Californias of the world and all of these offshoot organizations from that, it's become a lot more of a game of whack-a-mole than it was. And it's not because the talking points are much different. It's because the ability to respond and expect some kind of change grounded in truth 
is much, much, much more challenging right now. Everyone is entitled to their ability to do advocacy. Everyone is entitled to their ability to push forward their own ideas, whether I agree with them or not. But the second that the conversation around housing and land use bills, especially in the housing affordability crisis that we're in in California, devolves into just this whack-a-mole of like debunking lies that are coming from 30 different corners of the state, it really distracts away from the ability to negotiate policy in an honest way. And when you don't have someone that you can honestly negotiate with and trust that they will also go into that negotiation honestly, it ends up taking time away from the ability to improve policy and make it such that it's better than it started. You know, I think that one of common criticisms that I've seen entering this space has been how much of an insider's world housing is and how little input people have, even though housing really affects all of us. And so I also see this criticism going the other way of like, finally, there's more input from communities about something that is affecting them. And so I wonder, do you also see any positive takeaways about greater involvement by your average citizen in housing policy? And do you think that there is a way to sort of capitalize on that so that more Californians are involved in California's housing policy and not so much in the negative way that you've noticed? I think that's a really good point. And I do think that a lot of the work that the press that's either watching or based in Sacramento has done, and also a lot of local news, I think that that has been a strong counterforce in countering a lot of this misinformation while making housing policy that's coming out of Sacramento more accessible to folks. A really good example of this, and this is a bit of a hats off to Liam, is the RENA and housing element process, right? That for so many decades was completely obscure, esoteric, and it impacts everyone's life. This process, every eight years, every city and county in the state has to put forward a housing plan that comports with what the state believes is sort of population projections or estimates. Every city has to zone for what the state believes to be sufficient housing at every income level, and essentially a zoning plan. So it's not actually building the houses, but setting aside sufficient space in your city. And this is a law that's been around for 50 years. But as Annie was saying, as I covered in a story in 2017, an in-depth piece, pretty weak. And there are a lot of efforts 2016, 17 going forward to add some changes or reforms that would some way strengthen this process. So anyway, sorry, but I wanted to give that explanatory comma about this. That's super helpful. And I appreciate the interruption. I think that that's one good example of you have a lot of folks from all different angles of the housing conversation, folks that are really pushing for stronger zoning in the housing element, folks that are really pushing against more housing in the element, people who are finally understanding what is this really going to do to my neighborhood, to my community, to the ability for increased opportunity and access and mobility in my community, and what are my opinions on that? This is one of those things where you now have a lot of higher information, normal Californians who are getting engaged in a way that I both might disagree with my, their position, might agree with their position, but they're getting involved in a way that they weren't involved before and making that the attention on that appropriately as high stakes as the policy outcomes will be of how that process goes. And I think that that's something that I kind of really applaud folks in the press who have tried to explain and point out and translate to folks the importance and stakes and outcomes of this process so that folks who have opinions 
about it can get involved much more, either pushing for more aggressive zoning or slower up zonings or whatever that might be. We love props to local news. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, flattery getting you everywhere uh, in this interview. Oh, yeah. But yes, yes. But it's again like the, you know, I don't want to be trite here, but like the ethical and journalistic standards of a reporter at a local news organization or at a statewide or regional or whatever that might be does really ground the conversation in a place where there's a massive void. So Manuela and I kind of talked about framing this whole housing issue in terms of general agreement that you need a lot more houses and especially, you know, a lot more houses for those at the lowest income levels more immediately and doing things like having massive new amounts of home building, having massive new amounts of funding, you know, massive efforts to end homelessness. Do you think these things are possible given your experience to be able to get done, you know, at the state capitol? I would like to be an optimist and say that it is possible. I think that the victories, for example, that we had in 2017, relative to past victories in California, it was a massive, massive landmark groundbreaking year. Relative to how much those policies will have a significant impact on reversing the trajectory of our housing crisis, they were small. Everything that went into 2017 being able to be a victory, it was a perfect storm of good circumstances that let us delicately tie that together. And some of those were in our control. Some of those were style of governance. Some of those were aggression of leadership. Some of those were timing of basically a decade of some of those policies really being in the works that all coming together at once. And I think that it will be very challenging for us to get back to a point where the external circumstances are such that we can make that significant of change and where the things that we're in control of, we acknowledge really quickly and we harness aggressively. I think that the work that the Newsom administration is doing on enforcement for new housing laws is very important in maintaining the integrity and baseline of making sure our past victories aren't for nothing. That enforcement alone is not going to solve our housing problem. I am optimistic that there will be a lot of normalization over the next six to eight years as we get through a full RENA and housing element cycle, which is that housing quota system that Liam explained earlier. That's still going to take six to eight years to even get most of the work out the door and another 10 years for that to translate into a boom of construction. That's a long time to be in a housing crisis. <laughs> and so like, I'm optimistic that we are going to get there and continue to chip away. And I think that every year we will be chipping away in more significant quantities. It's going to take a long time. And I think that that's something both for people who support aggressive moves in housing policy and housing supply. I also think that's an important message for folks who are skeptical or opposed skyscrapers are not going to fall out of the sky tomorrow, no matter how many housing bills pass every year. Fourplexes are not going to fall out of the sky tomorrow, no matter how many housing bills pass this year. So am I optimistic we will be able to get the policy changes and foundation on the books? I am, and I think it will take time. Am I optimistic that that will translate into, you know, a boom of affordable and market rate construction? I am, and it will take a long time. Annie, thank you so much for your time. This was really interesting. Yeah, thank you for putting me. It was great to chat with you. Yeah, thank you so much.
Thank you for listening to Gimme Shelter. We appreciate your business. If you like what we're offering here, please continue to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and other podcast services. This is important so that new people can discover us. Thanks, as always, to our editor extraordinaire, Victor Figueroa. My name is Liam Dillon. I'm a reporter with the LA Times. If you want to find me on Twitter, my handle is at Dylan Liam. And I'm Manuela Tobias from Cal Matters, and my Twitter handle is Manuela Tobias M. Uh, thanks for listening.